yeah, I could give you like a list of like 10 or 20 books to read, but that will not come nearly as close to what you'll learn from actually doing the deal. Just go out, put a group of friends together and buy a single family or a multifamily property. Just do a deal. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with Elijah Brown from Goldhawk Capital, founder, co-owner. And uh, normally at this point in the interview, I would say where the person comes from, lives, hails out of. Elijah is a nomad. He's going to tell us a little bit about that. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on, Terry. It was great meeting you at the uh, the Real Estate Wealth Builders Conference and uh, getting to know you, and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. All right. So another contact from RubeCon, which was like, I don't know how how that was for you, but I had a really awesome time. So a shout out to Dustin. We're going to tag you <laughs> in the social media posts for sure um, as uh, the person who connected the two of us. But Elijah, maybe you can just start out by telling the audience a little bit about your journey through life that's led you to be on the show with me today. Sure. Uh, so I'll take it back to college. Um, wasn't wasn't that long ago, but about seven years. And uh, I started watching a lot of YouTube videos about uh, real estate and rental property investing. And I made the decision uh, that I was going to buy my first rental property, just a single family house. But I had this big problem and that was I didn't really have any cash. I had saved up about $10,000 uh, US dollars and I needed help to essentially come up with the money for the down payment. And so I called my cousin and my best friend and together we came up with the capital and the credit to uh, be able to buy that first single family house. Uh, I was still, uh, I was a junior in college. That was awesome. We encountered a ton of setbacks and roadblocks in that process, but ultimately we came out the other side with a cash flowing property with a tenant and we wanted to do it again. So I ended up doing that uh, three more times in the single family space with different partners, friends, family, coworkers. And then I ended up actually getting a job at a real estate company right out of college. So I became an analyst, got really good at modeling cash flows, underwriting different real estate opportunities. And a mentor at work convinced me that I needed to scale into multifamily for a lot of different reasons. And so I set out on a quest to find a multifamily property that I could raise capital for, buy, renovate the units, and then ultimately sell. And I ended up finding a sixplex in Florida. And uh, keep in mind, I was living in Los Angeles where I was going to school, but I was buying properties in Florida, uh, like very far away. And so I hired property managers and that project was just a dumpster fire. There were so many issues and thankfully we were in a very strong market. So with a bull market, you can never know if the sponsor is to blame for all the profits or if it's the, uh, the market. And I like to say it's probably the market because I was so uh, new and didn't really know what I was doing. And we made it work. We delivered 60% IRRs to our investors on that after three years. And 
really started scaling our our portfolio from there to the point where now I've got interest in about a thousand units, uh, some Airbnbs as well. And right now I'm focused on traveling, enjoying my life and passively investing in great opportunities. Okay. So like, I feel like the, you know, you detailed the, like the, let's say the beginning part of the journey for me quite well. And then you go from the sixplex in Florida, there was a dumpster fire to an interest in a thousand units. So can you like break that, <laughs> break that yeah. down a little bit and then we'll get into the nomad, the nomadic lifestyle later on. <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I realized that if I really wanted to scale the portfolio, uh, I wouldn't be able to do it myself. There's no way that I would be able to go and buy that many units with my own money, my own time, my own effort. And so what I started to look for was opportunities to join up with larger funds that were already buying these large properties and essentially provide the services that I was best at to those opportunities. For example, I was really good at cash flow modeling and underwriting because I had a career doing that before. And I was really good at making relationships with investors and finding deals. And so I brought those uh, you know, skills into larger funds and said, hey, I'm going to provide this role within the deal and I'm going to get compensated for that. And uh, essentially, that's how I was able to start scaling by partnering with these larger funds. And so I got in uh, a few of those deals as the general, the co-general partner, it essentially just means I was part of the management team within the company that owned the property. And uh, that's what really allowed me to start scaling to the point where now I'm writing checks as a passive investor in a lot of those uh, larger deals. And now I'm acquiring two or 300 units at a time, you know, every month or so, just from essentially writing a check and doing nothing else. Mm -hmm. So, so just like it walk me through how that, how that goes. So like, okay, you, you start like kind of working, I guess, on a consulting basis or like as a co-partner with a larger fund. How do you do that? I mean, or do you go and like go on LinkedIn and figure out who owns those funds, call them up and be like, hey, I have these skills. Can I get in on something? Do you meet them at conferences? Like, how did you how did you do that? All the above. So just, it, you know, doing deals in this industry, you meet a lot of players. Uh, you meet a lot of people along the way, whether they're investors or partners or people you see on LinkedIn or at conferences. And you keep you keep track of who you meet and who makes an impression on you. And so some of the things you mentioned, like finding groups on LinkedIn, that's a great way to do it. Or even going to uh, RubeCon, you know, going to these events where you, there are at least, you know, 10 or 20 different companies that are there representing uh, people representing their companies. And that's a great opportunity to go up to them and say, look, I have this skill set. Um, I would like to essentially uh, either work for free or work for fees for you. So, a lot of people try to jump into this space by themselves and do everything by themselves. I was one of them. I did that and I burned out and it was risky. The better way to do it is to go work for someone who's doing it so that you can learn all the, the things not to do or the things to do. Um, and then the next step is to like come in as like on a consulting basis um, so that you can actually participate in the partnership and the upside of that opportunity. So. First, you got to have the skills. You got to learn the skills, whether that's underwriting or if you have a large Rolodex of uh, wealthy people you can call on as investors, uh, you got to bring something to the table. And then once you have that thing, you can start approaching companies and, and saying, I've got value here. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to just, um, you know, backpedal and kind of underline that for our listeners. I think that's just like really a golden nugget right there because, you know, I think like there's a lot of, of us, um, you know, or like in the, in, let's say the real estate coaching space where, um, you know, people are going to sell you coaching, not to say that there's not a utility for that, but, um, you know, definitely myself, when I knew that I wanted to do this more full time, I went and got a job in a property management company for three years. And now, lo and behold, that's kind of my business model. I make money by finding poorly managed properties and applying those skills that I got paid to learn. Because that's the other thing, right? Like you said, you also, you know, came through as an analyst in a company. And so like those skills that you were hoping to one day without necessarily even that intentionally knowing what that's going to turn into, the fact of like getting paid to learn then gives you a skill that becomes marketable or useful to other people and then you know be that also in terms of how you you know network or how you build a network um that's also not something that you wake up with one day that's something that is a product of like years of farming and so like i think you know those are kind of two things that like listeners i would like you to walk away from this interview with is that you know, that's one way to to get onto this path is to acquire some skills. You don't necessarily have to go and do a certificate, you know, at university or go get like pay for education. You can also get a job somewhere, learn it, and then, you know, sell that skill or find a way to make money with it in real estate. And, you know, in terms of building your network, even if you don't know exactly what those connections are going to help you do one day, the fact that you're out there in the space, shaking hands, meeting people and like, leaving an impression, um, you know, I think we are, are the sum total of our interaction at Rubecom was like a 15 minute conversation in between sessions. Right. But like, here we are a month and a half later having a podcast because we had a little connection and then that turns into something else that we don't know exactly which door is, it's going to open. But you made a good point that I want to highlight when you're getting started with this path working for or with someone else in exchange for a paycheck to learn the skills is a lot less risky. It's a a lot less risk than doing it yourself. But then there comes an inflection point where you've learned the skills and it actually becomes less risky to go and control your own fate by doing it yourself on your own. Um, You know, one of the things I like to tell people is that when you are just collecting one paycheck from one employer, you have one source of income, one point of failure. And so if you can figure out a way to essentially get multiple streams of income, which you're only going to be able to do through entrepreneurship um, or passively investing, you know, that is a lot less risk because if one of those streams of income gets cut, like you get fired from your job, you've got the other ones to rely on. And so there comes a point where it's, it's, less risk to do it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, this is something that comes up often on this show and in private conversations outside of the show, which is like, you know, I look back 15 years to the conversations that I was having 15 years ago with my friends who were all had corporate jobs and nice condos and new cars. And, you know, here I was with like my two shitty properties in a shitty part of town. And we were comparing, you know, whatever money we made at the end of the year and, and, you know, and they were like, oh, Tara, I never do what you do. It's so risky. And like now fast forward 15 years later, like they've been, you know, gone through two or three job cycles, been fired a few times. And it's like, I still have the same employer. It's me. And now if I don't show up to work, I don't show up to work. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. I just, I remember like back during the, the, the COVID 
pandemic and you know everybody was scared about losing their job and the company you know wasn't doing large uh, pay increases and it's like you just feel like that your fate is just in someone else's hands and and that's like I want to control my own pay increases and my own opportunities and my own income streams and really the only way to do that is to start some type of side hustle or company yeah and it and also it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive you know like I think you're talking about um, you know, the risk factor at the beginning that like it's less risky maybe to go and work for someone. But like, I think, you know, when I hear your story and I could go back to that point in my life as well, like when I got a job at a property manager, I already owned three properties and like I wasn't ready to scale yet. But like I kind of ran those two things like on a parallel track and like actually just, you know, sold that last property, the last of those initial three this morning. <laughs> awesome. But Congratulations. Then, yeah. <laughs> um, but it sounds like you had a similar path, right? Like that you were investing on your own already when you kind of got into working in the real estate field. And so it's not like those two things have to be mutually exclusive. You can definitely do them at the same time. And, you know, in terms of risk management, you shouldn't like run faster than your skill set allows you to. But, you know, I think going to end single family home and starting out small, I mean, if you could do that when you were 20, that's not something that's so big or so beyond the capacity of many people to deal with that, like, you know, if you, if you want to get on this path, why not do that and get yourself some education at the same time? Absolutely. And, you know, there is nothing that can replace doing deals. Everybody always asks me, what, what books do you recommend? And I stop them and I'm, I'm like, yeah, I could give you like a list of like 10 or 20 books to read, but that will not come nearly as close to what you'll learn from actually doing a deal. Just go out, put a group of friends together and buy a single family or a multifamily property. Just do a deal. And like, even if you lose the money from from that, like the, what you learn from it is so invaluable that it's almost worth it. Um, but like, yeah, yeah, just nothing can really replace going and doing deals. So even if you're just in the beginning and you don't know much, uh, go out and, and do a deal. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Great advice. Now, tell me about being a nomad, because I think this is like something that happened, like, you know, I'm hearing this story like more and more, especially, I guess, more among your generation than mine, because once you have kids and schools and like all these different things to manage, uh, you know, I can't imagine <laughs> backing my household yeah. into a van, you know, but um, tell me like, how did, I'm assuming that was a COVID thing. Like, how did that happen? And how are you holding that together today? Terry, there are plenty of families in school buses out on, out on the road. <laughs> we call it, we call them schoolies. Yeah. Yeah. No. And then it's like a homeschooling and a whole thing. It's like, no, 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 I am not uh, uh, <laughs> qualified to take that on. <laughs> this actually came about like five years ago. So before COVID, uh, wow. I had, I had the dream and I had been selling some of the, those first deals that I bought. We had 10 deals go full cycle in the last few years. And my girlfriend and I decided we'd like to make a lifestyle change. We want to go capitalize on this dream of traveling and seeing the world and you know living out of a, a camper van and so we 
went and we bought one of those extra long Mercedes Sprinter vans and we spent two years building it out. We did all the work ourselves with no construction experience. And I recommend against doing that, uh, just buy one that's already done by a professional factory or whatever. And now we travel full time. So we've been on the road now for about six months and it's just been incredible. We spent time in Mexico, we're now in Colorado and it's, uh, it's a really cool experience. And so you, does, do you guys have like, I mean, you are, you're working, um, with Goldhawk. Does your girlfriend has a, have a full-time job? She does. She, uh, she owns a branding and graphic design studio called sunnysidestudio.com. And so how does that work? Like work-wise, you guys just park and there's like, are you in your van right now? Like, is there no space? Like, how does that work? Usually we are both in the van and we'll sit across from each other and we share our calendars so that they don't like uh, overlap each other. But there's two different seating areas. There's one where the couch in the back and then there's the front passenger seat that swivels around and there's like a pop-up table. So we can be, you know, 10 feet apart. Now that doesn't help with uh, being in the same sound space. So what I've actually done when we park somewhere for a longer period of time, I'm now in a co-working space. So I literally go into like an office uh, like I would anywhere else. And I am here, I can take my meetings and I'm not disrupting her. The other option is to go outside of the van. So the whole purpose of this lifestyle was to get outdoors more and, you know, not be, not be on our phones as much. And so we have like a it's called a, a moon shade. It attaches to the top. It's pretty much an awning. And we set up a table and chairs outside. And I love to just work outside, sitting down by the river or at a beach somewhere. And uh, with some shade, it's perfect. I can take my meetings uh, from outside. And like, then do you guys work like full days? No. So I try to work uh from like 7 or 8 a.m. until noon or 1 p.m. And then I really like to take the afternoons off so that I can explore and enjoy where I'm at. But I'm also, you know, checking emails as well in the afternoons. But it's typically, you know, a Monday through Friday morning type of business. Right. Somebody read Tim Ferriss. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's funny about Tim Ferriss? I'm so glad you brought that up because it's the idea of the the four hour work week is just awesome, but it ends up always still being, you know, a full time work week because you spend all the time putting in all the effort up front to like set up a system and automate it and get it going so that you can focus on the next one to get even further in your business. And so if you're spending all your time setting up the next big thing, for me, it's another deal um, or, you know, expanding my team, I'm still working full time. It's not like I'm working four hours a week. Uh, so. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, I think that's, but that's like really a great point is that like, um, you know, it, it's one thing to start a business and like then run it on cruise control. It's another thing if you're constantly, you know, leveling up and trying to, trying to progress at something, it's not true that you can just put that like on to cruise control and, and not build it. Right. Um, okay, so let's uh, I have one more business related question before we get on to some, some of the other stuff. Um, so, you know, when we met at RubeCon, you were telling me about, um, you know, the stuff that you're getting into an Airbnb. And I thought that was kind of interesting because like us, I'm, I'm a, up in, in Montreal and here we have um, Airbnb. We just actually had like a place burned down in the old port where like a bunch of people wow. died. And so the province is like really cracked down on, you wow. know, 
unpermitted Airbnbs and and all that kind of stuff. So just tell me, like, how did you start out in that space? And like, how what does that look like as someone who invests in that massively? Like, is it all, you know, permanent permitted and properly insured and like all that kind of stuff? Or like, what does it look like for you guys? It's definitely all legal and above board. And, you know, as you mentioned, cities are definitely uh, and municipalities and governments are definitely cracking down. But this specific strategy that I'm investing in is purposely going to locations where that's not an issue. You'd probably think of so in, in the U.S., we, you know, a lot of our different municipalities and governments are split up, uh, you know, politically. And so we look to invest in areas where the politics favor uh, the landlord. So places that have come out and said specifically, we will not regulate short-term rentals uh, or, you know, we will never, you know, you will be grandfathered in and we will never essentially come to you and say this is illegal uh, because that's a huge concern. I'm sure, you know, in Canada, all over Canada, it's, uh, you know, everyone's cracking down because the reality is that most residents really don't like it when, uh, you know, their neighbor is having guests come and party until the, until the wee hours every every single day and causing problems. And so, yeah, we are only looking to invest in areas where that's not really an issue. How I came about investing in this opportunity. So my bread and butter is multifamily. I built my whole portfolio in multifamily. And right now with high rates and high interest rates and low cap rates, it's really hard to cash flow. The cash flow just isn't really there. You know, people talk about 10% cash on cash and 15% cash on cash. Well, right now in like the large syndicated multifamily space in, in the US at least, you're looking at, you know, five to 7% net cash flow to the limited partners in a deal. And that's really not very attractive to a lot of people. When you talk about passive income, the biggest portion of that is your your cash on cash. You know, you, how much money you're getting every year as a percentage of how much you put in. So if you get a hundred thousand, if you put a hundred thousand dollars into a deal and you're only getting five thousand dollars a year out of it, like that sucks. Like I don't it, that it's you know, for me, it's like I have enough of it in there and I'm recycling enough of it every single year that, you know, it, it works for me because I'm making income in other ways. But for someone who's just focused on becoming a passive income, passive investor, cash on cash is a huge deal. And you can find much higher cash on cash when you're charging $500 a night with an Airbnb. And so for a lot of people, especially me, that's, you know, a very interesting proposition. And I was very interested in investing in an opportunity like that, where I can earn maybe 12 or 15% cash on cash. So that's why I got into Airbnbs. Um, it's, you know, a very small portion of my, my overall strategy, and it's something that kind of just di diversify and provide a little more yield, albeit higher risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you want to maybe just say something about that before we get out of the business sphere? <laughs> about the risk? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. When you're looking at a deal um, and you see high rates of return and high cash flows, there should be a little uh, alarm going off in your head that says this is actually higher risk. Um, we talk about like like IRR and cash on cash and the other metrics. Those are really just a gauge of risk. And so if you see a deal with a 15% IRR versus a 20% IRR, which is your, your annual rate of return when you factor in the compounding time value, that 15% deal is probably a little bit lower risk than that 20% deal. You need to take risk for higher upside, higher reward at the end. 
with Airbnbs, you have a nightly rate. It's a you know a, a one day lease. Whereas with long term rentals, you have some you know usually a twelve month lease or a six month lease or even longer than twelve months. And so when you're dealing with uh, you know not having rent contractually guaranteed, it adds a whole nother level of risk. Then you layer on top of that the regulatory environment, the um, you know, the the politics of the local economy that may come in one day and say, well, you can't do this anymore. And that's a that's a factor that adds significant risk. When you're dealing in single family, that adds risk because it's uh, you know, single family pricing usually moves along with market sentiment and market hype. So if there's some type of panic in you know the, the single family market, the home buyers market, it's really hard to know. You know, can you sell that property? Can you rent it out? Like during the pandemic, you know, nobody's traveling, and so what what are we going to do uh, in that situation? We have to pivot into a long term strategy and lease those units long term. So that's just added risk. So when you see you know a 20% IRR and a 12% cash on cash, just know that that comes at the expense of extra risking and more possibility of downside. Yeah, I, I think you, you just explained that really nicely. This is also a point um, that I, you know, I make in my book, which is that, for example, insurance companies and banks, they know this. And so depending on the type of loan you're asking for, or depending on what you're trying to insure, like they brilled in a risk premium. And so like if you're buying, you know, for us, it would be like, a, you know, a multifamily property like next to a bar or like in an area where there's like, you know, whatever kind of risks, be it like environmental risks or something else, like the insurance company is going to charge you a premium. And so like that's something that you need to be aware of. Like when you see that it's it's they have these big statistical models. And if they're going to charge you a risk premium, it's like they're giving you a piece of paper that says, careful, this is a risky investment. And it's the same thing like with when someone offers you a return or tells you like, okay, I have this deal. I have a 20% return versus 10% or a 5% return. When you know that conventional multifamily assets are, do are doing a 5 to 7% cash on cash, like right. there should be a little alarm bell that goes off for you that says, okay, I mean, the, the you know, there's a nice return number attached to this, but what is, are the like the hidden risks or what are the things that like maybe I need to sniff around a little bit just to make sure you understand what they are. And it doesn't mean you don't do the deal. It just means that you need to understand exactly what you're getting into. And that when it looks like someone's charging you a higher premium or someone's offering you a higher return, that's like a little indicator that there's a risk going on. And not all, uh, you know, offerings are created equal. And so one sponsor's underwriting can be completely different from another sponsor's. And so that 15% IRR, you know, might actually be the same as that 20% IRR, just depending on how the different inputs and the way that the sponsor underwrote the deal. You know, people look at risk differently and they underwrite cash flows differently. And this is why I think it's super important that if you are interested in either doing it yourself or investing with a sponsor to buy any type of real estate, you should probably have some kind of understanding of underwriting, how the Excel model works and flows. You should probably ask the person or create one yourself to, you should ask them to see the actual like Excel model showing the cash flows. It's important to understand how they're analyzing and understanding the deal um, so that you can effectively weigh the risk. 
Mm-hmm. And for the more you know neophytes who might be listening to this, um, by underwriting, he just means putting the numbers into a cruncher. And so if you you know you want to see when you're investing, you want to see how did the person build their cruncher. You want to maybe try to build your own cruncher of a specific deal, and that's going to help you um, understand exactly apples to apples comparison. Um, okay, so look, I think this kind of uh, we're you know this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm watching the time go, and um, we need to get out of the of the business sphere for a second and get into the the next phase of the interview, which is you know one of my pet peeves in real estate world is you know people on their Instagram feed and the relationship we have to overnight success, right? So like you show up on the show, most people who show up on the show are like somewhere you know, on a success path. And so very often it's tempting to like, you know, you follow them on social media and it looks like we all have really cool lives and we're doing really cool things. But what are some of the not so cool things that you had to do to get here? Because it's not true that, um, you know, you get the instant success without uh, some of the sacrifices and some of the lifestyle hits that we all take. So tell me about about what was that like for you? Yeah, you're you're spot on. And this is why like 99.9% of people just like won't do it. It requires tremendous sacrifice. I mean, just like when I was working my my W-2 job, I don't know if you guys have W-2 in Canada. Essentially, it just means a day job. job. We just say it's It's a day job. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So while I was at my day job, you know, I was leaving my day job at like 6 p.m. and then working till midnight on my side hustle and like literally not having a social life, not spending time with my family, just spending all my time putting deals together, raising capital. And that is really just like a huge sacrifice. The other thing that I would say, aside from, you know, giving up your time and the things you want to do is you have to be willing to take significant amounts of risk. I mean, going in and asking investors when I had limited experience to trust me with their life savings and their hard-earned money in, you know, in this real estate deal, like I was not only taking on the risk of my own life savings and capital, but now I had other people's like livelihoods in my hands and that can like, you know, make you sick to have that kind of responsibility. It can make you nauseous. And that that is a huge sacrifice as well. You have to be able to like take risks on behalf of yourself and others uh, to to get to the success. Um, for for example, someone who wants to start like a tech company, they're going to take on you know investments from friends, family, and you know maybe venture capital. And ninety nine percent of the time, it fails. And so you know these tech entrepreneurs are you know willing to like risk all this reputation and capital uh for the small chance that it that it pays off and that is a lot to bear yeah yeah i think uh you know risk like risk and responsibility right and i think when you're um it's actually funny because my so my brother's a tech entrepreneur and um Mm -hmm. you know because we have some (laughs) that's so funny because you know we share some of the same like obviously you know investors and some of the same network and you know there was a time in our careers when both of us were kind of out there, you know, trying to raise capital from maybe like the, you know, the inner circle right now. I think like both of us have gone a bit further with our networks, but at the beginning, like we were, we're, you know, and it's like, okay, well, it's just not the same thing. Cause like in real estate, like the chances that you put money somewhere and it goes to zero, you'd have to be like very, very unlucky. Like in my 20 year career, I've never seen real estate investment. It might be, okay, well you can't sell now, but if we sell two years from now, we should be fine. Right. But like with tech, it's really like this could be a winning lottery ticket and you could be the next Google or this could be like a junk bond and like yeah. 
you just don't know. And nine out of ten times, it's uh, yeah. it's it doesn't work out. Yeah, but but the but the you know the common denominator is a little bit that like responsibility factor, which like you know I I'm I think we all feel equally in terms of like you know what we sort of promise to our investors or like that right. um thing when people believe in you to like hand over savings or hand over a check like it's a, it's a huge responsibility afterwards to to carry that through and be like okay I'm gonna yeah. make this work because I you know I shook your hand I looked you in the eye and told you it was gonna work so there's nothing wrong with uh you know doing it organically with your own money and saving up your own money to do it um but the growth won't be nearly as as fast yeah, for sure. All right. So I got one more question. What tell me about what you think we should be talking about in the real estate industry that we're not talking about? Two things. Uh, the first thing is uh, managing risk in the current environment that we're in and specifically what that looks like and some things that your listeners can implement within their own investments or portfolios. Um, the first one is, you know, deleveraging. So not taking on too much debt in the beginning. Your properties need to be able to cash flow at a high enough DSCR, um, which just means you're bringing in a, bringing in more than enough money to pay the mortgage every single month. Is, uh, a, a way to say it, and the best way to do that just don't don't take on too much debt. Right now, I'm looking to take on about fifty to sixty percent loan to value on properties when I when I buy them, and. It's just because with the high interest rates, it's very difficult to make them cash flow right now. And so you have to have lower lower debt. You don't want to be underwater and give keys back to the bank. It's, it's just a horrible situation to be in. The other thing for managing risk is over-raising. So if you're going to go and buy a single family house and you need 50000 for the down payment and another 25000 for renovations, maybe maybe you're going to put another 50000 just in the bank account for, for reserves, like a rainy day fund. Because if you get yourself in trouble, you need to, be able to essentially keep the property afloat to ride out the storm. And so I'd say make sure you're going in with a healthy amount of reserves um, to the point where a lot of syndicators right now are over raising so much equity uh, that you know a lot of the year one distributions of cash flows are now coming from reserve overages. Um, and I, th a lot of people think, oh, that's like a Ponzi scheme. You're just raising money from from John to give to Joe. But I actually see it as a way to reduce risk, at least in the first year or two. Um, the second thing that people are not talking about, so syndications. And I know that in your world and my world, it's what everybody talks about. But the reality is that like the majority of, of people have literally no idea what it is, what the opportunity is, because historically, private placement real estate opportunities have only been available to the ultra wealthy. And- Finally, they are now available to the average day people. The reason why I mention this is because I used to think, and most people think that the way to get exposure to real estate and to buy real estate is that you need to go out, find a real estate agent, go buy a property yourself, manage it yourself, or hire a property manager, which is, it's just a lot of work, takes away all of your time, and it's very risky because you don't have experience. The way that I think it's moving and the way that I wish I had done it in the beginning is through pooled private placement investments with more experienced operators. So I'm talking about, um, you know, like a, a company that maybe has, you know, millions in assets, they're already doing deals. And now they are, they are offering equity in those deals to everyday 
people uh, to essentially write checks for whatever portion of that equity that you want. So if you have twenty-five dollars or $50,000, maybe instead of using that to buy your own property, you should instead invest that in to a much larger opportunity that is managed by a very experienced person. We call that a syndication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in Canada, like our our laws and our vocab is a little bit different. But like, for example, here, like that might be something, you know, like a REIT or a fund sure. or like a private, you know, operator, um, you know, who raises capital and does does the kind of thing that Elijah does. And then you have to obviously worry about the, you know, Securities Commission and stuff like that. But I think... You know, to bring that back sort of to like a, you know, a small scale, like I think in a sense that's going to end up happening anyways, because, um, you know, in the US, I think there's a lot of like maybe smaller markets where like smaller operators can still get in. But like in Canada, like people are getting priced out of the markets and owning real estate is becoming a luxury Impossible. thing. Right. Um, and so what we're seeing more and more of is people having to get together in order to take advantage of you know, the cash flow and the long-term equity building. And then you're getting groups of people who have to go in together on stuff. And whether yeah, that is exactly you and a bunch of friends or whether that is you kicking in a little bit of money to a deal to, to a more experienced operator who already knows what they're doing. Um, you know, I encourage our listeners who feel like I'm going to miss the bandwagon and I'm never going to be able to get the $200,000 together that I need to buy this property in this particular overpriced market. No, not necessarily. You know, like there are the you have to start thinking creatively and and understand that like you can, you know, place some of your marbles in that game. You just have to be a little bit more strategic about how you do it in terms of who you collaborate with and like what opportunities you look at. So I think I think that's really very topical. Absolutely. And now you're even seeing, uh, you know, you can get into these things for as little as thousand dollars or less. Um, with uh, some of these funds, what they're doing is they're splitting up the equity in these deals uh, into like tokens on the blockchain. I know this is all uh, kind of complicated and Bitcoin and everything, but Millennial. essentially they're they're selling like microscopic pieces of of an apartment complex uh, or like the equity in that apartment complex, like a thousand dollars worth of that apartment complex, which is like point zero 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 one percent of it. Um, you can go and buy that um, and, you, you know, you'd own a smart contract that essentially entitles you to that ownership. So lots of creative ways to get in, even for people who are just starting out and don't don't even have five thousand dollars. So um, yeah. there's there's a way for everyone to participate now. Thank you. Well, look, thank you so much for sharing this time with me. Um, I think it's, it's I've certainly had a fun conversation and I think you, um, you know, formulated some stuff very eloquently, uh, which is what, uh, you know, I enjoyed with meeting you at RubeCon. I had a feeling we were going to have a good conversation. How can people reach out to you? How can people find you if they want to learn more about what you do? Sure. Uh, LinkedIn's the best way. I produce a bunch of educational stuff. I have three posts, three or four posts a week, um, some type of real estate advice, tips and tricks. Uh, so head on over. It's uh, linkedin.com slash in slash Elijah W. Brown and just hit the connect button uh, and then you'll start seeing my content. Feel free to shoot me a message or download any of my my free products. I have an ebook and an Excel model. So we'll be sure to drop that in the show notes. Um, Elijah, thanks again for uh, spending this time with me. If you enjoyed this episode, if you found it educational, pass it on to a friend or someone who you think could benefit from listening to it. Obviously, subscribe, drop us a review and tune in next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. 
You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.